Welcome to the Voices of Australia podcast, hosted by me, Anthea Hancox, and Lydia Tessima, where the concept and reality of social cohesion is deeply explored. This podcast is brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. Each fortnight, we bring to you an interesting guest who present a new and often unexplained perspective of Australia. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we are recording the podcast, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we pay our respect to all First Nations people. Welcome, everybody, and thank you so much for joining us on the Voices of Australia podcast. Unfortunately, my co-host, Lydia, can't, uh, can't be here today, but I am delighted that we have Aleem Ali as our guest for this afternoon. I, um, Aleem has spent more than 20 years seeding and mentoring the development of leading initiatives and social enterprises that advance inclusion, belonging and justice for diverse communities. As the CEO now of Welcoming Australia, Aleem is working with leaders and organisations across the country to cultivate a culture of welcome and advance communities where people of all backgrounds can belong, contribute and thrive. He is also the Deputy Chair of Oxfam Australia and a mentor and advisor to various startups, community enterprises and government agencies, including Australian Human Rights Commission, Our Race and Regional Opportunities Australia. And we're thrilled to have him here to talk about multiculturalism and social cohesion. Are they the same or are they different? So we're looking forward to hearing your thoughts, Salim. But I thought we might start uh, with you telling us a little bit about what what's the story behind your career path? What uh, how, how do you describe how you've got to where you are today? That's a very good question. Hello, Anthea. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I'm joining you from Mianjin, otherwise known as Brisbane. Um, how I got to be here? Uh, that's a very uh, circuitous kind of route, I think. I've done a lot of different things. I'm probably the jack of a few trades, master of none. So I uh, did an arts degree at QT and had the good fortune to work with some really interesting people doing a whole range of things, partly in the community development space, uh, partly in the social enterprise sector, and then landed a role in Brisbane City Council uh, working in a small team, uh, really looking at the activation of the city. That was kind of our brief, uh, which is a very broad brief, but we essentially used it as an opportunity to work with um People from diverse backgrounds, uh, young people at risk of or experiencing homelessness, um, really sort of different cohorts of people, uh, but doing that through creative uh, and community development sort of focus and endeavour. Um, and that work then led me to work for various peak bodies, uh, work in uh, a number of social enterprises, and then uh, had the good fortune uh, over time to apply for and land the role uh, founding and developing welcoming cities. And um, that kind of brings us here today, really. That, um, that, that is a, a very professional type of approach to talking about your career. But in actual fact, you've got a, a much more, a much broader social perspective on things, not the least being your own family background and, and mm. how that's informed who you are and what you're, com uh, you're actually really committed to. Do you want to talk at all to that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think my... My view of social cohesion um, 
is really very much informed and framed by my upbringing. So I grew up in a multicultural uh, Fijian Indian Irish Australian household, a multi-faith household, <laughs> Muslim and Christian, uh, and a justice and equity focused household. My dad uh, was the grandchild of indentured labourers under the British Empire. Uh, we didn't shop at the local supermarket because uh, as a kid I was told that it was owned by a South African multinational corporation during the apartheid regime. Uh, I remember participating in marches for Aboriginal rights um, and grew up in a household where everyone was welcome. Uh, everyone had a seat at the table, although we mostly sat on a grass mat on the floor. Um, but we had a table for those who were more comfortable sitting at a table. And uh, so that was kind of my upbringing, really. And we kind of I was raised on the principles and values of love and kindness and generosity and humility and forgiveness and community and relationship. Um, and so that has very much, I guess, informed uh, who I am and what I'm doing today. Yeah, I, I think that's so important to actually take uh, acknowledgement of that, but also appreciation of what that brings to your approach. I, I think um, one of the things that the this podcast has tried to do is to not necessarily come up with a definitive definition of social cohesion, but I wondered mm. if you could talk to how you, if people talk to you about um, certainly the um, your approach to social cohesion or why you even refer to the terms of social cohesion, what mm. what comes to mind immediately when you think about that? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's really the willingness of people to work with each other in a way that uh, allows everyone to have an opportunity to prosper and thrive, basically. Um, and so I, I tend to, you know, if I'm ever looking for a definition, and I know that's not the focus of this podcast, but if I'm ever looking for a definition, I tend to look at uh, the Scanlon Foundation forms that we've sort of co-opted for our welcoming city standard, but recognising that for me, co social cohesion is more than just getting on. Um, it's more than neighbourliness, you know, it involves some really important uh, domains and pillars around belonging and justice and equity and participation uh, and people's value and worth. Um, and so recognising that, that it's quite complex and it's important that uh, it isn't uh, necessarily a top-down approach, but that uh, people from all um, backgrounds have opportunity to engage in that space. Perhaps um, because you've mentioned welcoming cities and that's sort of an off, uh, a component of welcoming Australia where, where you're the CEO, I wonder if for those people that are not familiar, you might like to give just a bit of an overview maybe of both the history but also what welcoming Australia focuses on now. Mm. Um, so welcoming cities uh, was formed about six and a half years ago. Welcoming um, Australia. Sorry, Welcoming Australia uh, was formed uh, 11 years ago uh, and then uh, Welcoming Cities as an initiative was formed about six and a half years ago. Um, Welcoming Australia with a broad view of really in part trying to change the conversation around um, what it means to be a diverse and welcoming and inclusive uh community and society um, and recognising that there were some quite public and divisive conversations happening in political spheres and, and often uh, populist media spheres 
um, around recently arrived migrants, refugees and people seeking asylum. And so the intent of the organisation um, was then and, and still is now, it, it was to really sort of reframe that conversation and then try and provide uh, frameworks and opportunities for uh, various aspects of society and institutions such as local government, uh, which is where Welcoming Cities was founded, um, to do that work in a more planned and, I guess, cohesive manner. And so Welcoming Cities uh, helps local government across Australia uh, play a bit of a facilitation and brokerage role in their communities around bringing all the stakeholders to the table so that they can advance social cohesion, so they can address uh, issues around uh, rapid population growth and rapid growth of cultural diversity in those communities, but also uh, for many regional, rural and remote communities uh, addressing issues such as population and economic decline um, and how uh, welcoming and inclusion is really critical to the economic and social success of those communities as well. One, one um, of the... One of the things, sorry, Elaine, but one of the things that we um, that's been so important to the establishment of, of welcoming cities has been the concept of a, of a standard around what a welcoming city is. Could you explain perhaps why it was important to try to shift a thinking away from simply appointing a diversity and inclusion manager versus actually something that embraced every aspect of what a, a local council might need to deal with? Absolutely. Um, I mean, we don't take a siloed approach to this work and it's really important to understand that social cohesion touches every aspect of society. Um, it's as important to uh, economic development as it is to community development. Um, and so we took a very holistic approach to that work um, and looked at everything that a local council did through that lens. And so the standard was established really to help local government understand and benchmark what success might look like in this space from a leadership perspective, from a economic development perspective, from a places and infrastructure perspective, um, and ensure that the work is embedded rather than just sort of siloed in, in certain elements of the organisation. Yeah, it, it's it's such an important thing and, and it resonates in areas outside of, of um, local councils as well, but, uh, but still an incredibly valuable thing to uh, to be developing now what one of the things we talked about uh, when I introduced you was that this was a discussion between social cohesion and multiculturalism do you have a view about though multiculturalism as a term versus social cohesion as a term I do noting that I don't like to get caught up in these debates but um <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> they might actually work together. <laughs> yeah, no, they do. I, I, well, I think they do. I yeah. mean, I think there's certainly an overlap, and I think that they're actually often used interchangeably. Um, but to some degree, I think both can exist without the other. So, for example, uh, we work in some rural and remote communities where cultural diversity is extremely low to, mm -hmm. to the point of monoculture. Um, and social cohesion can absolutely exist in that context. Absolutely. Um, but multiculturalism can then disrupt, and I would argue that in a good way, disrupt that reality. Um, and so for me, multiculturalism is partly about demography, partly about uh, lived reality, partly about policy intent. Um, and it's about the manner in which society engages with and embraces cultural diversity or not. Mm-hmm. 
there, there are certain um, components of different cultures that really do contribute to social cohesion. Uh, you've got, as you mentioned, a Fijian background, some Indian background in all of that. Can you see elements in those communities that you're particularly familiar with or others that you think contribute to social cohesion here in Australia? Definitely. I mean, as a kid growing up, most things happened around food or backyard <laughs> cricket or backyard soccer. Um, and so a lot of our sort of uh, upbringing as kids was very focused on community. It, you know, everything happened together and it happened with family and it happened uh, either, you know, in a safe home space or, or out in public spaces as well. So you know, I think um, particularly from, you know, sort of that Pacifica element uh, as well as sort of Southeast Asian influences and even um, to a certain degree uh, Irish Anglo, you, you know, there's histories there of community um, and engaging with community and being part of community uh, actively and visibly. And I think um, as a kid growing up in that context and then, uh, uh, as a first generation Australian on my dad's side, sort of engaging with um, m my peers who were mostly from uh, Anglo backgrounds, um, saw such a, a massive difference uh, in just the way people conducted their lives, very uh, individual, small family units, um, dare I say it, bland food um, <laughs> and, and all these kinds of things going on. And uh, there was there was interest uh, from my friends to go, oh, what, what is that? What are you eating? Um, what does that look like? What, why, why do you do that? Why, why are there so many people at your house? Um, and, and sort of this growing cross-section of, of people coming into that, uh, that fold and that group um, so, yeah, absolutely. I think there's quite significant contributions to social cohesion in that space. Do you have any particular memories of, of incidents that occurred either at school or, or more broadly for, for you in that adjustment between the two or how you found a way to actually navigate between the two different types of approaches? So many memories. Um, <laughs> as, as a child at primary school, I never wore shoes, ever. Um, and I blame my dad for this from a Fijian uh, background. Um, so I would often uh, either get in trouble <laughs> for not wearing <laughs> shoes, particularly at a school where you had to, uh, or um, it would it would prompt many conversations and discussions from my friends around, where are your shoes? Can you not afford shoes? And, I, and, and it was not an issue of that. It was just that I didn't like to wear them. Yeah. Um, and then I went to a private school where I, I had to at risk of detention. Um, and then my nickname became the barefoot bandit because I just refused <laughs> to wear them whenever I could at any opportunity. Um, and, you know, different things like that. It, it, names are always fun. Um, growing up with uh, an Arabic first name and last name, but my middle name is Sean. Um, <laughs> and so that would often throw people as well. What, what do you mean your middle name is Sean? Well, this is my heritage and, and it kind of speaks to who I am. And this is, you know, part of my story. Um, and uh, prompting people then in and around me to, to kind of go, oh, I don't even know what my story is. I'm not even sure what my heritage is. I've 
figured we'd always been Australian Mm -hmm. and sort of having those conversations as well. Aleem, you always come across as being very self-confident, very resilient, um, a, a great role model, both for family and more broadly. But did you have a time where um, your identity was something that you had to solve for yourself, that there was some way of trying to navigate who you were in this environment in which you were, were living? Yeah, I think I think for me it's been quite a progressive thing. I, I mean, I have predominantly fond memories of my household and, and my childhood um, and, uh, you know, lucky to be raised by parents who were very much pioneers. So, you know, they, they kind of weathered a bit of that themselves. So, you know, my dad um, is from a Muslim background, um, came to Australia in the 60s. My mum, uh, an Irish-Australian nurse uh, from a Christian background. And so they were very pioneering uh, just in getting married and having kids and settling down in suburban Brisbane. Um Prior to that, uh, my grandparents on my mum's side uh, were Catholic and Protestant at a time when Catholics and Protestants never got married. Um, So I think I've had the good fortune of example, uh, you know, in and around my life of people who um, have kind of rocked the boat a bit um, socially, certainly, um, and, and found sort of strength and encouragement in that as well. So, um, I, I, um, you know, there, there's plenty of, I guess, micro instances of, of racism and, um, you know, threats of violence and things like that. But um, I always kind of draw on those examples uh, and that heritage, I guess, um, so, is, so is had, really important to me. You had some sort of an expectation that things might not be smooth sailing, but that because others before you had had dealt with the rocky road, you were able to do it as well. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and just yes, great people, great role models, um, and very uh, supportive community around me. We we talked a little earlier about um, the same or difference between social cohesion and multiculturalism. Do you think that perhaps some people, as they're navigating their own journeys uh, around identity and the like, might feel that this talk around social cohesion is actually trying to move them into some direction of sameness with others? And maybe this idea of social cohesion doesn't resonate in the same way that perhaps we're trying to uh, to communicate it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it can. I, th- I think social cohesion can promote a sense of sameness, especially depending on intent, when we position uh, integration and inclusion as a nice way of saying assimilation. Um, But, you know, I I think if we go back to a definition of social cohesion, that includes those things that we've already talked about around belonging and justice and equity. Um, You know, it it really can't promote sameness because in that context, Monoculture is not the objective, you know, in the, in the context of justice and equity and belonging, I have as much value as you and together we respect and embrace each other's uh, expression of who we are individually and collectively. And, and so, um, yeah, of course, uh, you know, I think, you know, even terms like inclusion can, can sort of, you know, promote sameness as well. It really just 
is about the intent that we're doing it with. Yeah, this this um, one of the things that's quite prevalent. Well, it's it's upfront in the welcoming city standard, is the acknowledgement of our indigenous uh, peoples, and uh, and it is certainly something that seems to have resonated with many councils. That mm. that was an incredibly important part, and yet they didn't necessarily know immediately how to navigate the pathway of social cohesion. And, and First Nations peoples in, in relation to sort of talking about this and what the language should be and how do we actually make sure that this works for everybody. Is that, uh, can you talk a little bit about how that, um, how that has played out in the sorts of conversations that you've been having with councils and with others? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, again, for me, it's, it's really around that issue of, of justice and equity um, and you know, many of our councils uh, have really recognised the need to address uh, First Peoples and First Nations justice um, in the context of continuing to welcome uh, new arrivals to our shores and recognising that this is very much an unresolved history that's playing out in the present, um, you know, around uh, people who continue to be uh, dispossessed and and don't have uh, genuine, you know, voice to parliament and self-determination and uh, treaty, which is starting to play out in, in various uh, states at the moment as well. But, um, I mean, we we still work with communities and councils where it's also deemed easier to label acknowledgement of country as divisive and consequently choose not to acknowledge country than it is to do the really important work of understanding our history and present. Um, when it comes to First Peoples. Yeah. Um, and, you know, very much when we were, even when we were first looking at the work of Welcoming Cities and some of the work that had been um, developed and modelled uh, internationally, a lot of them were coming from a European perspective where they don't have, um, you know, a, a, an understanding or, or an experience of, of dispossession of First Peoples in their countries. And so we found very quickly that we very much needed to contextualise what was going on here in this country, what hadn't been resolved and how we could help communities continue to move forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's a really interesting area. I, I just reflecting on there's been some things happening uh, in the news and, and uh, going on at the moment it, in relation to uh, activities being done that are coming across more as a marketing spin than actually a genuine approach to a particular um, issue or, or circumstance. So whether it's it's to do with um, people being given clothing that carries a, a pride flag um, mm. or whether it's in relation to other types of activities where it's... it's um, uh, th- there hasn't been the work being done beforehand within the organisation to actually bring people along to get them to understand how to build that familiarity and that understanding of difference that doesn't necessarily threaten your own identity. Are, are these the sorts of things that um, that you've had to think through when you consider how to approach talking about social cohesion, whether it's to new councils or to other organisations, that they have to understand the work that needs to be done beforehand? Yeah, definitely. We talk, um, and we got this from Mark Yedekopolson, who's an Aboriginal man who's been doing some really interesting work in this space, but we talk a lot about symbol and substance, so recognising that symbol is absolutely important, so that Mm -hmm. the flag is important, and 
the narrative's important and, you know, the front-facing public campaigns are important. Um, but that's only one piece. <laughs> the other piece is the substance. So what actually sits behind that and what is the work and what is the practical activities that are happening on the ground every single day in communities that are actually advancing this work? And so kind of this important tension of holding both symbol and substance in either hand and recognizing that, you know, we need to bring them together at times. We need to focus on one more than the other at times, but they equally have a really critical role in the work. Yeah, I, I think that's incredibly important, especially since um, I was going to move on to talking about promoting social cohesion and multiculturalism. Th it is really interesting to think about where leadership should come from in relation to social cohesion. And I, I wondered if you had a view, um, given that we're a completely nonpartisan, but whether it's from your perspective or my perspective, um, the the area of um, of policy making and whether mm. there is a role for is there such a thing or should there be such a thing as a multicultural policy or should there be a social cohesion policy or should there be something else that actually helps to integrate this very diverse community into everything that we do? So where where do you think the leadership should come from in regard to these sorts of policy issues? That's a really good question. <laughs> and well, if you could just solve the world, that'd be yeah, fine. Yeah, <laughs> depending on, on the moment in time, I might give you a different response to that question. But, um, I mean, I, I think it's really important at a broad political leadership level, and we see this every day, and this isn't about party alignment, but, you know, whether it's the mayor in a community standing up and, and getting a community excited about, um, the fact that uh, there's an African Australian family coming to 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 their to live in their town, and uh, you know he's going to be the new IT manager at the council, and um, it, the the woman is going to be the teacher aide, and their kids are going to go to the school. You, you know that that kind of upfront work. <laughs> It is so important it, in in those kinds of communities um, where a town hall meeting is literally everyone can fit yeah. in a town hall. Um, it's so vital to have someone who is respected in the community, um, and it doesn't have to be a political person, but so, you know people who hold positions of leadership, whatever that is, whether it's a business leader or a sports person or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, it's that being real demonstration. About, of, yeah. of commitment, yes, absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, leadership is is vital in that space. I mean, from our experience, it doesn't matter too much about what you call it from a policy perspective. You know, we work with councils who have cultural diversity inclusion plans and, um, you know, multicultural policies and, and different things like that. I think it's more about... Um, the intent behind them and how committed they are to ensuring that the work sort of permeates across everything that yeah. they do. Um, and it's, again, it's that symbol and substance thing. Is this the thing that is just a flag waving effort to go, Oh, look at all this lovely work that we're doing. Oh, we're holding a festival. We're doing that. Mm -hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with festivals, <laughs> but um, you know, is it more than just an overt public expression? Yeah. And is it something that is actually translating to changing um, I think it's, communities it, for the better. Absolutely. It is an understanding of the fact that this is um, usually 
an incremental process. You can't jump from being not worrying about it at all to instantly being the best social cohesion uh, entity that, that's ever existed. There is an incremental st- stages all the way through and it takes time and work to move through those particular stages to get to the point where all the community is on board with you. Uh, you can't just leap into something and expect it to be success straight away. Um, Absolutely agree, yeah. One of the things I know that you've worked on and and the people within your team have worked on as well is is not only how to become a more welcoming society, but who's responsible for that work. Um, we've just mentioned leaders, but in actual fact, I think, Alimi, would it be fair to say that it is actually everybody within the community that has some responsibility towards building a socially cohesive society? Definitely. Everyone is responsible for the work. I, I think traditionally, though, a lot of the responsibility has fallen to the disenfranchised and dispossessed, it, you know, whether that's first peoples and also to new arrivals. So I would tend to argue that it probably needs to be flipped and that the responsibility, not that it's necessarily weighted, but increasingly the responsibility really needs to fall to the dominant culture or what we would call the receiving community in our work and, and, you know, sort of whoever holds the space and the power. Um, And that's where we focus a lot of our intention is, you know, how do you take the receiving community on the journey to ensure that they understand who their new neighbours are, um, understand, um, you know, the value in this work, the the value of embracing diversity and inclusion and and ensuring that, you know, that that there's a coming together around that work. Yeah, I I think that's so true. I I remember uh, when we... um, uh, put together the toolkit for communities, not necessarily for councils, but for communities' engagement. There was such so important learnings about how it, how relevant it was to your new arrivals for them to understand how the heating system worked or what spiders should you be concerned about. And that was the sort of thing that neighbours could actually help and do, quite regardless of, of um, how, what to pack for lunch when you were going to school and things that, that clearly you're familiar with from your own upbringing. Uh, that that are just these just these simple things that uh, that neighbours can do uh, within the community to help people settle in. So, um, I think I think um, it would be really important to just spend a little bit of time as we come to the end of this uh, this podcast. What uh, to ask you? What what makes you hopeful about the future? And I know you are hopeful about the future. Um, what what is it that you? What are those strengths within Australia that you think we should be building on? Um, and and what do you think you're going to see play out over the the coming years? Yeah, for, for me, it, I think it's who um, it, it's fierce, intelligent, articulate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women uh, who are fighting the ongoing fight for self self determination. It's um, I mean, it's wherever we look, really, but it's it's young African Australians and Afghan Australians and people from the Pacifica community and others who who are determined to build a better future and to learn and endeavour not to repeat past mis- mistakes. Um, it's my kids. Um, they're vastly, vastly more articulate and considered about what advances our society in the best interests of all people and how we can do that than I ever was at their age and probably even am now. Um, I think, you know, I hold a lot of hope in in all those people. Uh, 
Aline, uh, this is sort of almost a question without notice, although all of them have been. Um, you have 10 principles that you say guide your work. Do you want to reflect on any of those? I'm, sure, I'm not going to ask you to name all 10 necessarily, but are there a few that really stand out to you? There's a few. I don't even know if this is one of my principles, but it certainly is now. Uh, just the value of uh, humility in leadership. Uh, I think the more that we can come at anything and anyone uh, and any problem that we face with uh, open hands and a willingness to listen and embrace people rather than be defensive and, um, you know, oppositional in our work is really important. And, and I think probably another one that jumps out to me that I'm pretty sure is in those 10 <laughs> principles um, is start small but start. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, people sort of often will say to me, oh, you know, the, the scope of your work is massive and how do you even begin and, and what does that look like and, you know, how did you get to there and I could never do that. And, I, you know, my, my response is always, oh, I think you could and I think you could probably do even better work, but just start somewhere. And whether it's, as, you know, the, the things that we've talked about, the really practical things that people can do just to make a difference in other people's lives, um, you know, whatever it is that you're particularly passionate about, just put your energy there and and just see where it goes because, you know, just just starting, I think, is, is often the first hurdle. You are such a living example of that. There are so many, I think, examples within your career and I would encourage people to have a look at your career because you really have just started quite a number of things that have grown on and, and, and blossomed and have made it an enormous contribution to this country. So, um, Aleem, on that note, I would like to thank you very much for having been a part of this podcast. And, uh, and I look forward to watching what Welcoming Australia gets up to next. Thank you so much. This podcast was brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. This podcast is produced by Faisal Farah with sound design and mixing by John Bigelow. Original music is by Official Steno. You can find all our publications on our website at scanlaninstitute.org.au. Please subscribe to be the first to receive our next fortnightly edition.